All right, once again, let's uh, open our copy of God's Word and look into the Gospel according to Mark chapter number 9. Uh, I was going to, uh, uh, I told Davy I was going to take a page out of Nicholas's book and start off with a story, but uh, I, I'll, I might save the story if I have time later, but uh, uh, let's walk through, ver we're dealing with verses 38 through 41 this morning, and uh, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, and the title of our sermon is uh, Valuing the Ministry of Others, and uh, we're going to uh, get to that, but it's going to take us a little bit of time to get to this part about valuing the ministry of others, but it, uh, it looks like that as Jesus has uh, been dealing with his disciples, now he's, he has uh, begun his uh, final journey into Jerusalem, and very soon he's going to go to the cross. He's going to go and hang, be uh, uh, crucified, hang on the cross, and die as a sacrifice for our sins, as our substitute, as our uh, Redeemer, as the one who would pay the price necessary for our salvation. He's going to suffer in our place, and he's going to die, and he's going to be buried, and he's going to rise again. And he's told that uh, to his disciples uh, on several occasions, and he has uh, just made it very clear in verses 31 through 32, but they did not understand. They're still struggling, and they still have this earthly kingdom mindset where uh, they want to be, uh, they want to have their part. They want to have a major role in that earthly kingdom that Messiah, uh, they hoped, would set up and throw off the yoke of Rome and, and uh, make Jerusalem the head of the nations. They, they were looking for that. And so that leads them to an argument, or a dispute at least, about who is the greatest. And we talked about that last week, how that Jesus uh, shows them a little child and tells them that unless they are converted and become like little children, they will not uh, be a part of the kingdom of God. And uh, so he tells them also that those that are first, if you want to be first, you have to be last of all and servant of all. And so uh, uh, that leads us to our passage this morning where John answers him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And he followeth not us. That's a terrible accusation, isn't it? And we forbade him. Because he followeth not us. 
So uh, when I first began to study this, I assumed that uh, maybe uh, maybe John is uh, uh, trying to push the point. You know, uh, you know. Well, maybe maybe individually we're not the greatest, but as a group of disciples, we're the greatest. And we saw somebody that was casting out devils in your name and he wasn't following us. And so we told him to stop. But uh, now I'm beginning to wonder if maybe John's not saying it from the attitude of, of conviction. And, and I don't know which way that it is. And maybe he's saying, hey, you know, we even told somebody to try or tried to stop someone from casting out demons uh, because he wasn't following us. And, uh, and this is a big deal, isn't it? Because we have still that attitude. It's very easy for us to adopt that attitude that we're the ones that have the truth. And other people just don't have it, and we can't have anything to do with them, and they uh, we can't put any kind of a, a blessing on their ministry because they're not following us. It's not the first time it's happened in the Bible either. If you rem uh, if you remember when you read through the uh, Pentateuch, I know you've done that, right? And you've read the book of Numbers, right? And you remember in chapter number 11 where Moses is uh, concerned about the fact that he is, uh, uh, has so much of a burden on him because of the children of Israel, the people of Israel that he is leading in it. And he is the leader and he has so much burden on him and he kind of, uh, complains to the Lord about it. His father-in-law has uh, uh, even advised him on it. And so uh, the Lord says, choose out 70 men and uh, bring them to the tabernacle and I will uh, uh, take of the spirit that's on you and put it on them. And so he did that. Let me just read to you what, uh, what happens Beginning in verse 24, And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people, and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud, and spake unto him, and took of the Spirit that was upon him, and gave it unto the seventy elders. And it came to pass that when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them. And they were of and they were of them that were written or that were chosen or registered, but went not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man, I, I can't hardly read this without kind of laughing, because there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. 
And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. So this is not an unfamiliar thing. And uh, uh, sometimes it's even easy for us to have the idea or adopt the uh, philosophy that we're the, uh, as I've already said, that we're the only ones, but uh, uh, that we've got all the burden on ourselves. And this is exactly what happened to a great prophet by the name of Elijah. You remember in 1 Kings chapter 18, he had such a wonderful move of the power of God. And he uh, uh, prayed and fire came down from heaven. He had uh, set up the altar and arranged the bullock and sacrifice. And then he took 12 barrels of water and dumped it on the sacrifice and it ran off the altar and soaked the sacrifice, soaked the altar, and the water ran around a little trench in around the altar, and Elijah prayed, and the fire of God came down, consumed the sacrifice, and licked up the water, even the water that was in the trench. What a wonderful thing. And then he defeats the... Uh, uh, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove and kills them. And he's probably thinking, wow, this is the turning point in the ministry. People are going to turn to Jehovah. They're going to serve Jehovah. And the very next thing he hears is the message from Jezebel. It says, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to make you just like one of those prophets you killed. And so he just gets discouraged and runs away. And he goes out into the wilderness and he finally gets a chance to talk to God. <laughs> and he says, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left and they're seeking my life to take it. Why don't you just go ahead and kill me? Don't let Jezebel do it. And God said, I have reserved unto me 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed his image. Elijah didn't know them. He didn't know who they were and they're not named for us. But I want you to understand that God has a whole lot of nobodies out there that no one has heard of and no one is talking about and they're not a part of the uh, uh, the upper echelon of preachers. Their names are not known. They're not being called to speak at conferences. They're just doing their job for Jesus and they're just as valuable as any of us. So, let me 
I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I was going to walk through these verses. Oh, he follows not us. So we, we forbade him. Now, this is just a uh, actually a restating of something that Jesus has already stated back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, beginning in verse number 20, if you, if you want to look back there with me. You remember when uh, the, the scribes came and they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. The multitude cometh together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. They said he's beside himself. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils casteth out the devils. And Jesus, he called them unto him and said unto them in parables. Listen to what he said. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and he, he be divided, he cannot stand. Stand, but hath an end. End. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Mm -hmm. And so, here's what Jesus uh, is saying: is that if uh, if this guy is casting out devils in my name. And by the way, it's not been just uh, but just a few days since the disciples had tried to cast out a demon and could not. And apparently this guy is having some success at it. And they were ready to stop him. And, and their problem with him was that he's not following us. They didn't say anything about the people that the guy was ministering to. They didn't say anything about his uh, success. And apparently they tried to stop him and weren't able to stop him either. But he is continuing to cast out devils. And Jesus says don't forbid him because if he's not against us, he's for us. Right? Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. If he's doing a miracle in my name, then he's not preaching against me. He's not deceiving. For he that is not against us is on our part. Matthew says it like this: He that's not, uh, he that is uh, uh, against us. No, oh, let me read it. <laughs> I thought I had it memorized, but Matthew chapter twelve. I've got it somewhere here. I'm going to get it. 
time? 30. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. And so he says, forbid him not. Back to Mark chapter 9. Forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. So, I've got five points that I want to share with you. I may not get them all in this this morning, uh, and uh, but so I'll just go ahead and give them to you. These are five things that I want us to look at and think about in this passage of Scripture. First of all, God can and has used many and varied men and methods to advance his work. Number two, I want us to think about what this passage does not teach. And that's as important as what it does teach. Number three, I want us to notice that there are two sides or two kingdoms at odds here. There's conflict. And fourthly, I want us to notice that those who preach, practice, and persevere in the truth of the gospel are disciples of Jesus Christ. No matter if they were Presbyterians or some other denomination. Number five, our works are important. So let's, let's think about these things. First of all, God can and has used many, varied and uh, many and varied men and methods to advance his works. Matter of fact, that's, uh, uh, that's what uh, uh, the first verse, the first two verses, of Hebrews chapter 1 says, right? God who at sundry times and various ways spoke unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has made heir of all things and by whom he made the worlds. God is uh, has used and can use anybody or anything to do his work. Jesus told those who tried to stop his followers from uh, shouting Hosanna uh, to him that comes in the name of uh, David or to the son of David. He, uh, they said, tell him to stop that. And he said, if they hold their peace, the rocks would cry out. God can use any body or anything or any method. God has used in the past godly 
faithful men like Samuel, and he's used godless men like Saul. He has used and spoken through faithful prophets like Moses, and he's used wicked prophets like Balaam. He has used wise men like Solomon, and he's also spoken through Balaam's donkey. <laughs> One time in 2 Kings chapter number 7, when the uh, Syrians had, uh, uh, had surrounded Samaria and encamped against them, and they were cut off, and people were literally starving to death inside the city and eating their own children, there was such a, uh, a, a, a terrible situation there. And uh, uh, one night, God caused the Syrian army to flee, and they left everything. They left in such haste, and four lepers, lepers, Guys who were going to die anyway, they were defiled, they were outcasts, they were nobodies, less than nobodies, and uh, they were the ones who discovered the, uh, uh, the bounty that was left, and they started carrying it back to their camp, and one of them said, we're not doing good, we, this is a day of good tidings. This is a day of good news. If we continue like this, some evil will befall us. And so they go and God uses the message of four defiled, dying, nobody lepers. <laughs> to give the message of deliverance to these people. And what about this? I was thinking about this earlier. Uh, sorry, Art, while you were preaching, I was or, or teaching. I was. I got to thinking about Melchizedek and how Abraham in Genesis chapter fourteen is coming back from the battle of the kings, and here is a man by the name of Melchizedek, the prince of Salem. We wouldn't have known him except God chose to bring him into Abraham's path. But God had somebody like Melchizedek that was a true, faithful man of God. He was such a great man that Abraham gave him tithes. Wow, that's something. Well, let me move on to the second point because I'm not going to get very far. Uh, not only does uh, God use many and varied people and methods to uh, do his work, but uh, what this passage does not teach is that God wants us to be unified at whatever cost. It does not teach ecumenism. It does not teach that uh, we are to, uh, to be united with people who preach false doctrine. It does not mean that just because someone uses the name of Jesus in their preaching that we should accept them without giving it some thought and some uh, examination. 
That was never his, that was never his message. And it's not his message in this passage of scripture. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus, verse 34 and following, Jesus says this. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, or at, uh, uh, to alienate a man from his father, and to alienate a daughter against her mother, and to alienate the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies, a man's foes, shall be they of his own household. And here's how you're supposed to respond to that. Here's how I'm supposed to respond to that. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. You see, if we would choose those who refuse Jesus, those who reject Jesus over Jesus, just because of the natural relationship, Jesus said, you're not worthy of me. And another place, he said, you cannot be my disciple. That the fact of the matter is that truth and error are always in conflict. And there is always going to be someone who will disagree with the truth that's being preached from the pulpit, from the Word of God, and they will choose to separate themselves. And all separations are not bad. Y'all hearing me? Or are you going to sleep? All, I, I, I don't blame you if you need to sleep. It would be a good thing, probably. But I do want you to understand that, uh, that this is something that Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that we are to seek for unity at any cost. Truth divides. Remember, as a young man in the area where I grew up, uh, there was so much... Uh, emotion-driven Christianity. It was all about getting up, getting the shout on, getting the, uh, uh, the good times rolling, and, uh, you know, feeling real religious when you go to church. And I, I'll be honest with you, I enjoy that myself. But, uh, but this working up, of emotion and as long as they could get the emotion going it didn't matter about doctrine and people would say things like and I even had a preacher tell me he said we don't worry about doctrine we just go to have a good time the, I mean he was serious about that and he thought that he was that that was the thing, to go to have a good time. But to have sound doctrine is the thing. 
That's what it's about. We are to have sound doctrine, and if sound doctrine drives someone away, then we don't have to like it, we don't have to enjoy it, and it may break our hearts, but it has to be. Truth divides, and sometimes it's not just the truth that di divides, sometimes it's our opinion of truth that divides. And that's where we need to be more careful. But uh, thirdly, I want us to notice that, the, that what Jesus says here is very clear that there are two sides. You know, we've talked about this before as we've been going through this section that uh, there are two kingdoms here. There's the kingdom of Christ and Jesus has come to establish the kingdom of Christ. And the way he's going to do that is through his death, burial, and resurrection. They were hoping that he would come in and, and sweep in like a great warrior and destroy all their enemies and set up the kingdom right then. But Jesus wants them to understand that his kingdom is a kingdom that starts with his death, with his him as the seed falling into the ground and dying. He is the one that will be the foundation of the kingdom. And it will spread through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of that message. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and so what we're talking about here is that there are two kingdoms in conflict. Just like the earlier part of this chapter when Jesus took his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to the Mount of Transfiguration, they got a picture of his kingdom. Christ glorified. The, old, the picture of the uh, law and the prophets testifying to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, this is a picture of his kingdom. But then they come down the mountain and you get a very clear picture of the kingdom of darkness when the devil has a young man by uh, uh, by the throat, so to speak, and he's using him and doing him any way he will. And he has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. But when Jesus came on the scene, Jesus gave him life. And life more abundantly. I just want us to understand that this is still what's going on here. There's still that uh, two-kingdom conflict. It's conflict. And on, also in this conflict, there is no neutral ground. Do you hear me? There is no neutral ground. I, I hate to, uh, to try to hammer this so, but it it appears to me over the years that uh, that I have seen multitudes and multitudes of Christians that are trying to find a neutral place to live in. You're either, Jesus said, you're either gathering with me, Luke chapter 11, you're either gathering with me 
or you are scattering. There's not anything in between. You're gathering or you're scattering. You say, well, you know, I don't do much of anything. Jesus said it's not that way. You're scattering or you're gathering. You're gathering or you're scattering. Can I ask you a question? Is there any evidence that you're gathering? Is there any evidence that you are doing anything to advance the kingdom? Jesus has been dealing with this for uh, ever since chapter number one. Just as soon as he steps out and is identified by uh, John the Baptist and by the Holy Spirit and the voice of God the Father and he's baptized, he goes immediately into the wilderness and there he is uh, uh, confronted by Satan and then this conflict just keeps Going in chapter number one, he goes to the uh, uh, first place there, begins to preach, and immediately a demon cries out. In uh, chapter uh, number two, he uh, goes to uh, goes back to uh, uh, Capernaum, and they bring a a lame man to him, and he heals the lame man. And the uh, scribes and the Pharisees are saying, "Hey, you said." His sins were forgiven. How can you forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. There's that conflict. And in chapter 6, he goes to his hometown and he's rejected by his <coughs> friends and neighbors of his hometown. Chapter, uh, chapter 6 and verses 14 through 29, John the Baptist is killed and you remember that story and uh, chapter 9 we uh, we've already talked about so the uh, kingdom of darkness is always against the kingdom of Christ Satan's messengers are not to be tolerated or ignored Paul uh, reminded the Corinthians uh, about the uh, messengers of Satan. And in Acts chapter 20, I won't read it, but you remember that uh, Paul uh, had a meeting with the elders from, uh, from Ephesus. And he told them, he warned them that uh, grievous wolves would rise up among them, not sparing the flock and uh, uh, and. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this about those, those uh, false apostles, those false teachers. He said, for... Uh, he says in... As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Wherefore, because I love you, not God knoweth. But what I do, 
that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, de deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. The apostles, uh, like Paul, were always willing to name those uh, false teachers in uh, Second uh, John, verse seven. Of course, you remember Paul uh, told Timothy. He said, "Demas hath forsaken forsaken me, having loved this present world." Uh, in second, or excuse me, third John. He says in verse 9, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who love, loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath, good, hath a good report of all men and of the truth itself. You see the contrast there. And then fourthly, and I'll have to stop here in a moment, but fourthly, those who proclaim, those who preach or proclaim, practice, and persevere in the truth are disciples of Christ. And I wrote this quote down by a man by the name of can't hardly say his name, Rupertus Melden, Meldenius. He was a German uh, theologian in the 17th century. But here's, here's something very good that he said. I don't know very much about him. I just have this. And it's a good one to write down and keep with. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, Humility in all things, charity. Is that good? In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, humility. In all things, charity. There's even a place, scriptural place, for us to humbly think well of those who oppose us. <laughs> mm. 
Remember in Philippians chapter number one, where Paul is writing that letter to the church at Philippi, and he wants them to be encouraged, even though he is suffering for the faith, he's in prison. And so he wants to encourage them. And he says, the things which have happened to me have fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. And everybody that was preaching the gospel in the context there that Paul is using the word, the way he's using the word is uh, uh, they were not friendly to Paul. But what's going on is that this whole case has been brought before the whole uh, kingdom and the whole uh, household of Caesar, and they are talking about it. And some people are saying, man, that Paul is crazy. He thinks that this guy Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. And then somebody else said, oh, he's not preaching anything wrong. The Old Testament teaches that the Messiah was going to come and, and die and uh, suffer and rise again. And so Paul's just confirming the Old Testament scriptures. And so all that's going on. And Paul says, you know what they're doing? They don't even know it. They're preaching the gospel. It's pretty good, huh? I heard this, I'll, I'll close, but uh, many years ago, and this is not the story I was going to start out with, it's another story, but uh, many years ago, I, I went to hear a famous preacher preach, and uh, he was talking about a man that had come to faith in the church that he pastored, and the man was deaf and mute. He couldn't speak. He couldn't hear. And uh, someone helped him. And he came to faith in Christ. And he was so fired up that he wanted to do something. But what can you do? How can you evangelize if you're deaf and mute? And so he got a family Bible, one of those big old family Bibles that's got pictures in it and stuff. And he found a picture of Jesus. Now, I know we don't have that. But he found a picture of Jesus and he would go out into the street and he'd point at that picture and say, <laughs> and God used him. He actually used that guy. He can use you. He can use me. And he can use people that we may not think that he ought to use. He can. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would just take these scattered thoughts and cause them to be helpful to us. May we glean from them and may we be strengthened by them in the week to come. In Jesus' name, amen.